0: Alrighty, righty, everyone. Welcome back. Tavis Killing here with Petro to say one month into 2020, and so far it has been a great month. I mean, outside of Biden's policies, energies remain mostly unaffected. And from a personal standpoint, I just had a great time. I mean, this is Monday Madness. It is Monday, February 1st, start of a new month. And I finished off that last month by doing some backcountry in current creek with good friends. And it was an absolutely beautiful day. Hope all of you listeners out there are staying happy, healthy, and active. But enough of that. I know you didn't come here to listen to me brag about how much fun I'm having. You came here for those cold, hard numbers and the biggest news stories and energy for the past week. Kicking things off with WTI prices, we see that prices remain strong, sitting at $53.13 at the time of writing the script for this episode. The past couple of weeks have shown that WTI prices keep bouncing off a ceiling of $54, down to a floor of the high $51 range, but markets have not closed below $52 since the 8th of January, excluding a close of $51.98 on the 21st, which we can pretty much just call $22. What does this mean? Well, we are in an incredibly unique set of circumstances, with the Biden administration implementing dozens of orders and policies, many of which revolve around energy and the environment. This will likely increase the amount of upwards pressure that does exist on price, and hopefully it pushes it through that $54 limit it keeps testing. That's not to say that it'll come right back down if it does, but as an optimist, I am hopeful for prices and hopeful that they continue to claw their way out of the pit of 2020 towards a $60 pricing point. But hey, I'm young, brash, and most importantly, not a financial advisor, so we'll just have to see how this prediction plays out next week. Next up, you know we've got that rig count. So remember last week when I predicted Biden's policies will have a delayed impact on rig count, if any at all? Well, that prediction still holds. Uh, I'm not saying it's correct, but it holds. Another six-rig increase for the rig count report released on the 26th of January, pumping that U.S. total up to 384 rigs. Now, looking into the finer details, we see, of course, once again, the Permian was the bulk of that movement. Now, don't get me wrong, I love to see the Permian grow as strength in American energy makes me happy, but I want to highlight the gains of others that might be living in the shadow of the Permian's 192 rigs of the US's total 384. That's why I plan to be implementing a second place stud of the week title. This will hopefully highlight some of the little guys who experience big wins on rig count, which, you know, I have been doing for a little bit, but I thought it'd be fun to throw a title belt in the mix. The first to be awarded this prestigious and honorable title, The state of Wyoming, who brings their total rig count from four to five for that juicy 25% rig increase. So way to go, Wyoming. But that's about all I have for those statistics. Lastly, we've got, of course, to go over domestic inventories. Last week was a bit lackluster, leaving us with a slight build, but apparently that left us with nowhere to go except for up, and by up, I do mean down. Uh, You'll see in a second. The API released a report on the 26th of January Claiming there was a 5 million barrel draw, that is all fine and dandy, but I am much more partial to the numbers from the EIA. Their report came out a day later and reported, get this, a nearly 10 million barrel draw. Talk about starting off the month right. Price remaining solid at $53, rig count continuing to increase despite an administration that wants the opposite, and inventories that are well on their way to being sucked dry. Overall, A great week according to the books, but just how good was that week compared to the headlines? For our first story, I'd like to start the way I did last week and talk about a pipeline. No, 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 not the Keystone XL, but there are some tie-ins I would like to discuss near the end. This week, we are talking about Nord Stream 2. If you aren't familiar with this pipeline, I'll do my best to get you caught up to speed with a quick crash course of its history. Back between the years of 2011 and 2012... Russian Gazprom pioneered a project that would easily transfer through the northern parts of Germany to other parts of Europe, including countries like Sweden and Norway. That was the first sort of half of the project. Of course, there were a bunch of other lines that were built in that time, but the biggest and perhaps the most controversial is Nord Stream 2, which was a behemoth of an underground pipeline that would transport gas directly from Russia through the Baltic Sea all the way to Germany, where it would connect to the rest of those previously mentioned pipelines. All was fine and well until the United States saw this as a threat and the Trump administration imposed sanctions in the middle of 2020. This was most of the basic information that should get you all caught up. Now, Russia, of course, is still rather upset about the decision and has recently hinted that they may take their issue to court. Gazprom has even warned investors that political pressure is leaving this project in uncertain territory that may even end in termination. Even Biden feels that this is a bad deal for Europe. Most people opposed to the project feel that a project of this magnitude would monopolize Russia's control of gas markets in the region. Germany, the fellows on the receiving end of the pipeline, have taken a purely economic view and fully support the project. Thanks to U.S. sanctions, the project that would have been completed by now has stopped, as most who have previously aided in the completion have reevaluated their position and stopped their collaboration. Russia stands on the grounds that this is hybrid warfare from the U.S., and it seems that they're serious about taking this to international courts. Now for the implications of the Keystone XL. The U.S. has already released fact sheets that have rolled back some of Biden's orders. I mean, remember how Indians in Utah asked to be exempt as it imposes on their freedoms, with respect to the drilling, of course. Well, Indian territory is now exempt from the order. What if Russia sues? It is unlikely that the rest of the world will back Russia, as many are concerned about the use of resources, like natural gas supply, as political leverage. But if it is overturned, I feel that that would catch Canada's attention. Why is Russia's pipeline okay, but the Keystone XL is not? Seems like a decent enough thing to say to the U.S. in international court. After rolling back more and more of what the administration said it would do, it sort of makes the U.S. look flippant and easily persuaded. Perhaps these executive orders will have more political backfire than intended. Ultimately, I really doubt the world would allow the completion of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, no matter how much Russia whines, so I think the Keystone XL will likely remain incomplete. Just some food for thought for you all, and another highlight of the many, many, many geopolitical factors at play, always surrounding oil and gas. Next up, investors and what history might have to say on this matter with respect to the past. While there are certainly many bigger, sexier things happening in the stock market in the past two weeks, investor disenchantment is something that has existed for quite some time now, especially in the oil and gas sector. Kevin has a great periodical that dives pretty well into the topic, very deep, so I encourage you to go to rarepetro.com and search investor to listen to that, or read it if you haven't already. Today I would like to get into a few predictions about the future based around the fact that more and more money is leaving oil and gas companies and finding its way into the pockets of green tech companies. Companies like NextEra Energy and Tesla who have big visions for the world of renewables. While I don't think it is bad to support these companies with investor dollars, this is not the first time investor money has left oil and gas. Let's go back to the early 1990s. America is starting to fight a war against terrorism and the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait leaves oil prices severely depressed to the teen range and most investments fled the industry. While not nearly as bad as the oil embargo of the 80s, prices slowly recovered before absolutely surging a few years later thanks to previous depression. While this would be a historical situation that would confirm my bias and definitely benefit the sector a few years down the road, say 2023-2025, there's also evidence of things going in the opposite direction. Some of you listening may remember what I'm about to describe, but I was only in high school when things started to kick off. We've talked about the shale boom plenty with the industry leaders on the show and other podcast segments. I mean, simply too much investment money was poured into the oil and gas sector, and the returns on the oil could not justify the returns on prices. Each well performed incredibly well at the start, but it was a monumental waste of investment money that left markets oversupplied with gas, and then I don't exactly have to tell you about what that led up to with a culmination of other factors in the year of 2020. That is a tale that is still fresh on our minds. All I'm attempting to highlight with this little segment is that lots of money is leaving the sector. And while that seems bad for the near term, I do have reason to believe, well, not only believe, but be hopeful for the future. Estimates predict that annual investment needs to be 25% higher over the next three years to stave off a supply crisis. And that is much more than what was required after the 2014-2016 shale boom slump. Again, I don't hold all the answers, but we at Rare Petro do our best to share and highlight trends and history so that we can narrow down our options and make educated guesses about the trajectory of the future. Uh, Alright, I know that sounded a little bit hippy-dippy, so let's get into our last story and close off the show with some much-needed positivity. At the end of last year, Occidental became the first major U.S. oil company to announce an ambition to achieve net-zero greenhouse gas emissions associated with the use of its products. Well... The end of January closed with the announcement of their first shipment of carbon-neutral oil. This essentially means that any emissions throughout the entire life cycle, from extraction to, you know, the cleaning to the midstream transport, have been offset. Now, I'll be the first to say that I think the oil and gas industry has done their fair share in reducing worldwide emissions, but hopefully this captures the attention of some larger headlines. The oil and gas industry is so heavily vilified but clearly eager to do better, parts of it at least. I mean, look at Liberty's new frack fleet. It's going to be one of the most environmentally friendly fleets out there as they produce much of their horsepower from low-carbon generation methods. Even Oxy CEO Vicky Holub highlighted that their use of carbon sequestration takes roughly four million cars off the road annually, which she figures is more than the effect Tesla has with their company. If anything, stories like these and looming potential shortages do give me hope for the oil and gas sector. So it's going to be interesting to see how it all plays out in a few years. Are my predictions a result of me reading the writing on the wall, or am I a crazy pro-oil propaganda spreader? The best way to find out is to subscribe to the Rare Petrol Podcast so that you can keep up to date on the industry. Not only am I covering news, making predictions, and revisiting those predictions, Kevin Olson, one of our associates, is making predictions based off of, well, more numbers and data than I tend to incorporate. So lots of good content that you won't want to miss. Please leave us a review. Contact us at podcast at rarepetro.com. Let us know what you think. Again, I'm Tavis Killian with Rare Petro. And until we see you next time, take care, everybody.